There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F*** that. You don't got time to say All right, let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's going on? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 101.7. At 1320 KLWN, lots of programming news and notes to get you. First of all, agenda for the show today. Scott Chasen of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net, is going to join us in 30 minutes from right now. We'll have our college football season preview at the 4 o'clock hour. Found some interesting notes about previous Heisman winners. Did some digging and how it's very often not the favorite. We'll get into that as well. Bryson Stricker. Rock Chalk It Up will join us at 4.40, talk some KU football, and then we'll finish up our KU football positional previews with the safeties coming up at the 5 o'clock hour. Later tonight, we've got our first high school football action of the season. That's exciting. You know, football season is back. Obviously, it will be for tomorrow with the KU football game here on KLWN. We'll be doing a, a show out at Mama's Tamale Shop from 4.30 to 5.30. Um, high school football tonight, 7 o'clock, KLWN for Lawrence High, 7 o'clock, on 929 The Bull for Free State, and we're going to have video feeds streaming with 810 Varsity. You can go to klwn.com or bull929.com to find Lawrence High or Free State, respectively. Marcus Garrett got a two-way contract with the Miami Heat. He initially signed an Exhibit 10 deal with Miami, which could turn into a two-way contract. It's essentially like a tryout, basically, where you get to come into training camp. You know, you get to go summer league team, which Garrett did. And the team can then decide if they want to use you in the G League, if they want to sign you on a two-way or something more after that. To get a two-way contract after that is a big win for Marcus Garrett. And I thought he would have gotten a two-way contract after the draft. It seems like to me, and I don't know this for sure, I'm just kind of guessing what happens. A lot of agents 
and players, I'm sure, push to get to Miami, not just because you'd want to live in Miami, but because they have also a good team and they tend to have one of the best developmental programs for these young players. So for all we know, like Marcus Garrett, maybe there was an offer on the table for a team like, I don't know, the Sacramento Kings or the Oklahoma City Thunder who said, hey, we'll give you a two-way contract. And Miami said, we can't promise you a two-way contract, but if you want to come here, prove your worth, we'll give it to you. We'll give you an Exhibit 10, and if you earn the two-way, you earn the two-way. And Marcus Garrett said, I want to risk that. I want to make my way. I believe in myself, like most athletes do. And you get to Miami, and now he's in a really good position in a two-way, in a team who really does value their young players and grooming along these young guys. He was super fun in the summer league. He causing havoc all over on opposing opposing point guards and kind of drew rare, rave reviews, it seemed like, from anybody who was watching him. And he does seem to just kind of fit in perfectly with that Heat team that has some grit and grind to it. Just with the way he plays and his versatility, his defensive acumen, his smarts, I kind of have a hard time believing he won't get a shot in the NBA for a handful of seasons. And if he can develop that three-point shot even a little more, specifically if he can develop like a corner three-point shot, then boom, you're in the NBA for a decade. So good for Marcus Garrett. I hope he succeeds along with his basketball future. KU football starts up tomorrow uh, since 2009, so 2010 and on. The most points per game that KU has averaged in a single season is 23.8 points per game. That came in 2018. The next best was 23.5 points per game, which came in 2019, and then 22.3 points per game, which came in 2011. 2018, you had the season with Steven Sims and Laquiviante Gonzalez, I believe, for KU football, 23.5 in 2019. That was the year with Brent Deerman taking over come midway through. Otherwise, they'd probably break the record there. And then the 2011 season was just a Turner-Gill year where Jordan Webb was okay. Um, so to get to that point total, you know, that's, I, I guess, kind of the bar you're looking at. Can KU have some season bests, right? Can they have their most wins since 2009 by winning four games? Can they average the most points they've had in a decade at 23.8, so 23.9, 24 points per game, we'll call it. To get that, you're having to see basically a nine-point-per-game increase from what KU did a season ago. And while that does seem like a lot, and it is a lot, especially for KU to get there, that typically does happen from year to year. Like, if you go look at the teams who improve the most in terms of points per game, and I know this is a very basic way of looking at this, but when you look at the teams who improve the most, they're typically around 7, 8, 9, 10 points in a given season. So it can happen. And if you can be the most improved team in the country or one of the five most improved teams in the country on offense, you can do that. How realistic is that? That's another question in general. But also, you have to consider your bar is lower and last year was unique that it makes it more possible, right? You had less games last year. You had... No games against an easier opponent. You didn't play South Dakota last year. You played all league opponents, and then you played against Coastal Carolina. This year, you're going to have some games that are going to be more manageable for you with the South Dakota game, with the Duke game. And those are going to help in that regard. Uh, but one big issue that I think could prevent them reaching 
you know, all of a sudden being a touchdown better on offense or being the best offense in terms of points per game that you've had over the last decade is something that Jesse Newell talked about yesterday. And that is just a lack of pace on the offense. They're going to be more of a ball control running offense. And, and I think that's getting a little oversold right now. I know that's been brought up of the fact that, yeah, they're just going to hold the ball a lot longer. They're going to run the ball a ton, use the clock, try to keep possession as long as possible, make it a low possession game. I think that's a truth to a certain standpoint, but like, I don't think they're just going to sit on the ball either. Like Andy Kotelnicki has talked about this, that with tempo along with the offense, how it's, how it's multiple and how it is versatile and, and uses different formations. They're going to approach it the same way with tempo. There's going to be some drives where maybe they do sit on it a little more. There's going to be some drives where it's just a normal drive. There might be some drives where they do throw in a little bit faster of a tempo. I think it's just going to depend game to game, series to series. Maybe coming out of half, you try something a little bit different. I, I don't know. I just think they're going to do different things. So I don't think it's going to be a complete, like, Charlie Weiss situation in, I believe that was 2013, when they're just, like, running the ball the whole time. But the pace still is against them compared to some of those other teams that I don't think they're going to get there. Now, you average 15 points per game last year. Maybe you can get up to 18 or 19 or 20 this year, but your efficiency goes up. And that's the most important thing. Can you be more efficient, right? I'm just viewing this as a points per game standpoint. Not to say that's the be-all, end-all, but it's just an easy way of kind of tracking where you're at. More importantly is tracking the point differential. And that's where I'm going with this. Last year, you were outscored 46 to 15. That's a negative 31 point differential per game. So to make headway on that, you get better offensively, you average more points. You get better defensively, you give up less points in a simplest way of looking at it. And then, therefore, the games are closer. If you have a closer average point differential, therefore, you're probably winning more games. It's all cyclical like that. So you have to improve on one end by a lot or on both ends by a little bit each and meet each other halfway. The offense will be better. I think they'll average more points per game. But no, I do not think they'll come close to that 23.8 points per game that they had in 2018, which is the most they've had in the last decade. If you can get within spinning distance of that, given the difference in tempo, that's probably a pretty good sign. As far as the defense, the least amount that KU has given up back to the 2010 season is 30 points per game. That was in 2018. Which, by the way, that just brings up another point as you heard that was 2018 so KU give up gave up the least amount of points per game they've had in the last decade in 2018 they scored the most points they've had in the last decade in 2018 24 points for 30 points against and still they only won three games because David Beatty mismanaged a lot of things he should have beat Nickel State would have given you four wins can't remember if there were any other games that probably could have won probably were in there if you were only outscored 24 to 30 that was actually an okay team that's actually pretty interesting um but the next lease that you gave up 31.8 points per game in 2013 33.2 points per game in 2014 and keep in mind that 2013 2014 team under charlie weiss those are teams that held the ball a little bit longer ran the ball a lot some that that seems almost too much because for KU to average 33 points per game, which would be their third best in the past decade, that'd be a 13-point improvement. How realistic is that? 
But then again, those teams did it, and they had a slower tempo. And maybe if you are playing a slower tempo, then all of a sudden, that's definitely maybe that can trim off a touchdown from what you give up. And then maybe if you are just touchdown better, you drop it down to that mark. But that would be a huge improvement. That's two touchdown difference from what you were giving up last year. If we do want to kind of live on Hope Island, the most encouraging turnaround I found was from 2014 to 2015. North Carolina averaged eight more points per game on offense, so they saw over a touchdown improvement on that end. They also gave up 18 less points on defense. So in total from 2014 to 2015, North Carolina had a 26-point differential turnaround. So I guess there's your there's your blueprint. KU goes from being a team who's getting averaged outscored by 31 a game to one who's averaged outscored by five a game, and then all of a sudden you're a four-win team. There's the hope for it. Obviously, that's the top end of things. But I guess improving a touchdown on offense and a touchdown on defense, I think those, while still a large hill to climb, might be more doable than I thought when I brought this up a couple days ago. And if that happens, that average score of being within about 17 points per game, it doesn't sound like it, right? If you're average score at the end of the year is 39 to 22 you're gonna think oh no we probably lost every game except for maybe one okay you was shown in the past if your average point differential is somewhere between 14 to 17 per game a lot of those have been two or three win teams and I think that obviously be enough this year especially in a free year under Lance Leipold where you are judging it more on culture than wins and losses so if you get to that point, get a touchdown better on both ends, that might be enough. Because, again, as I explained yesterday to Cole, you know, you could beat South Dakota 31-17, to and then if you lose to Oklahoma 50-7, to you've been at that point outscored on the year 67-38. to That's how you get the negative point differentials from those big losses. But it doesn't necessarily determine you from – getting to three wins or so on the year, which, again, it would be a resounding success in year one for Lance Leipold. That's the challenge facing KU this year. You can get better on both ends of the ball and still not see the wins come in, but if you do get to that point differential, they'll probably come at an easier rate than you have, especially last year. And that is also part of the challenge facing Lance Leipold. If they can get near one of those spectrums, for their best in the past decade on offense or on defense in terms of points per game or points allowed per game. Just get near one of those. Get near both. That's another story. But just get near one of those. That is a quick way of accomplishing that big turnaround. And at the end of the day, it'll still just be one step along the way of a long journey for where Leipold and the staff is trying to get the program. But it'd be a nice first step in year one. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Scott Chasen of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net, joins us here on RCST. And we're getting ready. Tomorrow, we're going to be out at Mama's Tamale Shop. Mm-hmm. You'll be there 430 to 530. We'll yep. be previewing the preview of the KU football game. Yes. We're, we're before the pregame show over there. So just come on by. Swing by. It's 285 empanadas all day. Mama's Tamale Shop, they have four different flavors of margarita. It's a perfect place to stop by right before you head into the stadium. Yeah. 
Excitement level, scale of four to five. Uh, it's a, it's a 100 uh, <laughs> on that scale. Uh, we will be doing autographs for $10. <laughs> uh, that's correct. We will pay you $10 to <laughs> ask for an autograph from us to make us look cooler, to make us feel better about ourselves. No, but Derek, uh, my excitement level for the start of the season, I've said this before, and people think I'm crazy for this. Um, for me, just as a writer, whatever, I get more enjoyment out of covering, watching, following football than basketball because um, basketball is exciting. Basketball is great. Don't get me wrong. I love college basketball. It's, it's probably, you know, basketball is probably my favorite sport. But I, I think football is such a unique thing in that um, you have to build things a different way. Right in basketball, year to year, you can go from bad program to great program and, and right back to bad program. Yeah. And, and that happens all the three time. grad transfers, two five-star recruits, yeah, and boom. Boom, you're done. Right, and, and so – Football is so different. You have to build. You have to have infrastructure. Uh, facilities are important in basketball, but, yeah, they're really important in football, too. Uh, one good coach, as we've seen with Scott Frost at Nebraska, doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and and sometimes that happens at, at a, a basketball place, too. But even a guy like Shaka Smart, who had great success somewhere, comes to Texas, he still has some decent success, has some high-seeded NCAA tournament teams, even if they don't do whatever, you know, in football, it's just a complete like your style. Brett Bielema goes from Wisconsin, where he's great, to what Arkansas, where it's a disaster, and now Illinois, and it's just like it, it's so interesting to me. So um, I am very excited for the start of college football season, for the start of KU football season. I think it's going to be a blast, and yes, I am very excited to pay you to take my autograph. <laughs> um, as far as just KU on the field, if we went through the schedule here mm-hmm. and. I, I guess looked at what they could do win-loss-wise. How much do you think the coaching staff could be worth for that? Like, obviously last year, you know, if you lose a game 50-20, to 20, yeah. you can have a new coaching staff. It's probably not going to matter. Yeah. But as we look to it this year, the over-under is only one and a half. So, like, is the new coaching staff enough to maybe add an extra win or add an extra two wins this season? Yeah. Well... Look, to, to plug not one but two articles I, I wrote in our Countdown to KU football series. One was the best case and worst case for KU this year, and one was my record prediction. By the way, reasons. you and every writer missed a great opportunity today, or wait, no, yeah, today, because today's the Go day before the game, yeah. to, with Andy Kotelnicki talking about Christmas presents and stuff, doing a, I guess you still have time, doing a Twas the Night Before Christmas, but Twas the Night Before KU football ah. piece. Over KU football. Well, I did something better. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but I tweeted. I did. Yeah, that was very clickbaity. <laughs> I tweeted. I tweeted. Andy Kotelnicki is ready to make <laughs> the announcement. He has thought it over. Does he want the thing that's consistently good or occasionally great? But he was talking about Christmas presents and not uh, the quarterback battle. It was very clickbaity of me. Although the headline was uh, quarterback battle expected to be a game time decision. Of course, I covered that up with a photo. <laughs> but um, regardless, uh, so two stories. One was the best case, worst case. One was my record prediction. And in both cases, I kind of divided up the season into tiers of winnable games. And by winnable, I mean if Kansas won, my shock level would be zero. Uh, games I expect to be competitive. I expect Kansas to lose, but a scoreline maybe two touchdowns or closer, and then games that I'd be shocked if it, they're within 17, 20 points. And what I ended up finding this season, there are probably about three games that I think are reasonable that if Kansas wins, would I expect it? No, but would I be shocked? No, not in the slightest. Can I guess which three? Well, it's, it's a very easy guess. I haven't taken a look at the article yet. Uh-huh. Um You've only had two days too, so why I didn't you? even know this was out. I mean, <laughs> you're releasing like a feature story every day. Slow down, man. Okay, okay, um, go for it. What's the guess? But, okay, uh, let's go with Duke. Yes, Texas Tech. 
Well, no. You're missing one. Well, yeah, South Dakota. Yes. That was going to be my my final cherry on top. Is oh, that okay. correct? It's the three, the, in there? the three right. non-conference games were the ones for me. Okay. And then Texas Tech, uh, West Virginia, and K-State mm-hmm. uh, were in the, the next tier. And the reason like I could have chosen a team like Baylor, I, d- I didn't realize this. Baylor and Kansas have not played closer than 19 points in like 11 years or something like that. So it's just, And that was one time. Like every other time, it's been like 66-7, to 7, which was an actual score uh, of a game, or 60-6. to 6. So like... For whatever reason, that's just not a good matchup, usually because Baylor has a bunch of fast players. But um, regardless, I actually think there's a little bit of wiggle room for what the coaches can do. And the reason why that West Virginia game, like, if you talk to any beat writer or anyone who does a season prediction, they're going to mention that game. And the reason why is it's the last game. Yeah. And West Virginia is not the best opponent. It's at Can- uh, you know, at home in Lawrence. Senior day. So... If the Lance Leipold effect is as real as I think some think it is, similar to the Texas Tech game last year, you would expect that, you know, Kansas is going to be playing its best football. Yeah, that, that should game. be the best version of Kansas, yeah. barring injury to, like, key contributors. But Of course. And and so what how I how I divided it up, I said, if Kansas gets this first game, yeah, the pressure is off for the season. If Kansas gets two of the first whatever— you know, two of the first six. I don't remember when the K State game comes in, but I think the Tech game is one of those games is relatively earlier or kind of in the middle. Um, but you obviously have the three non cons early. If Kansas has two wins by that point, the season, I don't know that it's a success, but there truly is no pressure on anything. And then you just go play and develop, and, you know, Lance Leipold gets a long leash. That, that slack, in my opinion, that slack is gone after the first game if he loses it. Now, that doesn't mean you fire him. That just means the rope from KU fans specifically that right now may be like, yeah, you have a lot of slack, you know, no worries. That's just gone. And now it's like, okay, let's see what this team is doing this year because if it doesn't get better from here, you know, yikes. And so, to me, it's an interesting season. I I don't think they're going to win three, four, whatever games, but I I do think one or two wins, you know, you you look good in some other games. I think Lance Leipold has the chance to show that he's been able to coach up the talent on the roster and do more uh, with less. Yeah, I think if you get three, that's a huge success. I mean, two at that point is a success. I just imagine, like, if they got two wins and Lance Leipold's, like, on the recruiting trail and he's talking to a kid and he's like, but, Coach, you were only 2-10 and 10 last year. And he's like, yeah, but we hit the over, the <laughs> Vegas over-under late <laughs> yeah. in my first year. I just think that would be funny. I, but I wouldn't discount it. I, there are, I mean, there's a, a millions way to recruit. Yeah, yeah, well, if you're a coach, you have to sell it any which way. But, yeah, yeah if they go 2-10 and 10 and, and, like, any kid was like, yeah, you only won two games, like, it would be so easy for him to be like, Ask a Kansas fan what it was like right. the year before. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm yeah. just kind of joking around in that yeah. sense. But you know what I do find interesting? Like, I don't know if you've noticed this because it hasn't come up a ton, but maybe I, I don't know when you've been talking to some of the players because some of these situations have been personal breakouts mm-hmm. and you're kind of with different guys. Whenever, like, I've noticed a question or I've asked a question to a player about, like, what are your expectations this season? None of the players... I've heard this year have said something along. Like, I heard one player, I think, say, you know, we'd love to play in a bowl game, but he wasn't yeah. like it is to make a bowl game. Most of the players are just like, just get better every day and just start like a foundation for KU or whatever. None of them are mentioning the record, and I think that probably shows a good sign of the culture being instituted with Lance Leipold about the process over the results, and I think that's going to be really important to weather the storm through this year because if you are at one point, you know, uh, like I said, three and nine, I think, would be a successful season. Yeah. But at the end of the day, are the players like, how happy are you going to be if you're three and nine? So to have that identity, to have that culture in place to get you through some of those low moments is going to be very important. 
No, I, I agree. I actually noted that, and, and I was curious where you were going with that because I was wanted to hear if your experience was the same as my own, which is covering David Beatty, covering Les Miles, and this is not a criticism of, of anything. It's just a different way of doing things. You talk to a player before the season, they're talking about going bowling. And, like, that that's not just, like, a one-on-one conversation. That's a, I will say this into a microphone on camera. I'll be in the parking lot walking out to my car. You say, you know, hey, how you doing? Looking great. We're going bowling this year. You know, whatever. Um, that, I, I don't know if it, confidence is even the right word because, like, a lot of times it wasn't realistic. And I think what Lance Lippel did when he came in here, you know, his first his introductory press conference, he made it very clear that, like, expectations were going to be tempered. He's not going to nail himself down to things. Like, one of the biggest mistakes David Beatty made off the field, because separate category on the field, was he, like, nailed himself down to these predictions where he was like, by year three, we're going to do this and X, Y, and Z. And then it was like, well, you didn't meet that, so does that mean you're just a, a failure? And and for other reasons, I think his tenure failed, not because of, of press conferences. That's hardly the most important thing. But Lance Leipold has said that. You ask him, you know, where do you want to be at this point? And he, he his answer is always, I'm not going to nail myself down to saying this because I know it might change. And so, to me, that, that just tells me I think he's a more reasonable person. I think right now that culture is resonating with the players. But I just would say that I think it was Andy Kotelnicki who said it might have been Leipold that culture is a lot easier to implement when the season, you know, isn't yeah. going on. Because if you're 0-8, yeah, now let's see how you feel about uh, 1% better every day and all that stuff. So um, for the guys it clicks with, that's great for Kansas. It, those will be the guys who don't transfer. I think that's important. I, I think it's probably telling the guys who did transfer from last season, especially the guys who waited for the coaching change and then transferred. I, I think that was probably pretty telling. So, uh, you know, I just think different ways to look at it, different ways to implement a culture, but his is clearly based around, you know, improvement, Get, staying where your feet are at. I think that was a, a Lance Leipold quote from his introductory press conference and understanding expectations, not trying to compete and, and set these arbitrary benchmarks that then you have to hold yourself to, um, but just trying to get better and improve. I think that's Kansas's goal. We're talking with Scott Jason. Check out his work, 24-7 sports, fog.net. Um, what are you doing there? I just noticed you count something. Are I do that every how many time. Times I'm- no, no, no. And I've done this going back to, to your former host days, which I assume it's sacrilegious to, like, say his name. So I'm just never going to say <laughs> I've that. I've been wondering that, too. Like, no. it's, it's just a little uncomfortable. Not that there's bad blood there or anything. Like, there is, actually. Very good terms. People don't no. know this. Yeah. Derek and Nick at the end, it, it was like Mike and Mike. They were not talking between segments. Yeah. Nick called me. Nick actually made me resign on behalf of him oh, when wow. he was leaving the show. <laughs> he couldn't even talk to Derek. Um, it, this was going back. Uh, so I have I used to come in studio before the pandemic, and now, obviously, I'm back in studio. And no one really cares about this. But every time Nick would introduce me, he would say, Scott Chase yeah. 24-7 sports. And I would hold up a two, a four, and then a seven. <laughs> and I just did it once. And then he didn't notice. And so I was like, I'm going to do this every time until he notices. Derek, he did not notice in like four years <laughs> well, I did it. coming I on the show. How long have you been doing this with me? Uh, every time, but normally we've been on the phone, so you just don't okay. see it. But so... I've done it in studio every time you said 24-7 sports. All right. So I made it. I Notice a little shows. faster. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, um, where I was going with this, you mentioned your article talking about their chances in the different games and, and yeah. where you would peg those out, tear those out. But just in terms of what you think they're going to win, your prediction right now. Yeah. What's two, the record? I, I think two, two and, and ten. ten. And and why I come up with that is similar to what you talked with uh with Jesse, which was if I had to pick every individual game, I am picking loss, 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 right. loss. You know, after South Dakota, which Sidebar, shocking that that line is 15 and a half in some places. I 
I mean, I would have put it at like nine and a half and said like you like I dare you to pick South Dakota by you know fewer than ten points. See what happens. And I still think it would have been interesting, but yeah, I wouldn't touch that line. Um, uh, to me, there are enough winnable games and enough late in the year, specifically a couple, that I, I think you give Kansas the benefit of the doubt of improvement. But, you know, I, I really wouldn't mess with a line of one and a half because when I did these outcomes, I picked like arbitrary percentages and I tried to come up with a reason. Like, I'm not just saying 30% for this, but what I what I tried to think of that. Uh, think of it as was like if I simulated the season 40 times how many times does x y and z happen so on the top end I said four plus wins two and a half percent because I said if you simulate this season 40 times I think one time like some crazy stuff would happen and and that's my indication that I don't think it's going to happen zero wins I said 12 and a half percent and and the reason why I think if you do it eight times I think probably one time they're going to go winless and so you kind of built out from there I think it was 10 percent on three and 75 percent of the outcomes fell within one or two because I, I truly believe this is a one or a two win team I don't think it's much more I don't think it's much you know less or fewer than that it's just hard to kind of know because it's easy to look at it now and say well they could win that 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 and that but then when you actually get into those games and it's the second quarter and they're down 34 to 10 or whatever or you know 21 to 3 and it's like oh, well, they did have a chance to win this, but, you know, it was a small chance, and it was a small chance across the board. So, long story short, two wins would be my pick. I would expect one after that and probably zero after that before I would get to three, but I don't think three is out of the realm of possibility. I just, I've seen a few people pick four, and to me, maybe stunning is a little bit too far, but I I would be very, very surprised if this was a three or a four-win team. Yes, everything would have to go right at that point. Yes. Which is why, again, like if they win four games, I am on the Lance Leipold Big 12 Coach of the Year bandwagon. Yeah. And it'll be a little silly, but I think deserved, honestly. <laughs> well, two teams, I mean, it's crazy to think about this. What do you think the perception of Kansas would be if David Beatty in his last year just won four games, so beating Nickel State? And I mean, then, does he get fired at that point, honestly? I think so, because I think Jeff well, Long wanted to bring in less miles. That's, that's true. That's but, true. But, but, so stick with me on the hypothetical. Four wins that year, mm-hmm. and they went 6-6 six and six and made a bowl game under less miles in his first year. And then, so obviously, win, winless year last year. What do you think the perception of Kansas is right now? Be like, hey, we just... Took a minor step back for a major comeback, right? I right, like I almost think I, I've I, I might write about this. I I truly don't know yet. Uh, today's countdown to Q football column is going to be how many years until Kansas makes a bowl game. So it's kind of on a, a similar topic. Like if Kansas won four and then six games, I think yeah, probably Kansas still has the reputation of being like the bad college football team because people don't generally update their logs year after year. You know, they're just well, Kansas is always bad. Rutgers is always bad. You know, stuff like right. that. But. I think we would be looking at this rebuild dramatically differently, and I don't necessarily know that we should because they were, you know, again, Nichols State went to overtime. They should have won that game. Some bizarre coaching was the reason they didn't. And we've talked ad nauseum about the 2019 team, and uh, they gave away a Coastal Carolina game because they didn't, you know, they wanted to stick with Les Kenning as offensive coordinator. And, you know, they led Texas and Iowa State in the fourth quarter. They could have beat West Virginia. I mean, you, you don't have to win all those games. I mean, just three. But, I mean, you led Texas with a minute left. You led Iowa State in the fourth quarter. Like, the, those were, were games that you very easily could have won. So, I, I don't know. I've, I've put a lot of thought into that. And I think we would look at this then and say, yeah, maybe year one will be rocky because of the timing and the spring and all that stuff. But year two has a huge chance to, to take off. Like, forget about year three for a second. There's pretty good takeoff potential, I think, between years one and years two. So what you want to see this year is improvement, 
are you playing your best at the end of the year? Is it good enough to where you feel really good about this team? And uh, I think there's at least a fairly decent chance they could win one or two games but be playing great ball at the end of the year and then go into next year and win four or five games. I don't think that would be surprising. Scott Jason's with us on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, the other news that I wanted to get to before we let you go, because we'll have plenty more KU football yep. on tomorrow's show, Marcus Garrett signed a two-way deal with the Miami Heat. And the original contract, the Exhibit 10, was essentially, it was basically like a tryout to if you're going to get a two-way contract. He ended up earning it. Yeah. Seemed to kind of gauge uh, or, or garner a lot of top support from uh, brass around the heat and people who are watching the game seem to be really excited about what he was going to bring to the table for the team. He just sits, seems to fit into that culture. I do think it's funny, though, that when you're on the two-way deal with Miami, it is such a stark difference because you're going to be bouncing up and down between the G League and the NBA team. Mm-hmm. The G League team for Miami, which is like the most destination you know, NBA team or, or one of them in the, uh, in the NBA, their G League team is, I believe, Sioux Falls. Wow. There's a very, very stark difference there. You know what, though? Maybe I, I could see Marcus Garrett being a Sioux Falls guy. <laughs> you think that's Marcus Garrett's his own dude? No, um, uh, look, I, I think it's it's great for him. Exhibit 10 contracts almost always turn into G League deals, very rarely turn into two way deals, even more rarely into actual contracts. Actually, I don't know if one has ever turned into like a straight contract. Um, I, tr- I just don't know. I mean, it's certainly possible. But uh, for Garrett to kind of overcome that, I think was was great for him. I think. Um, fans have been excited about him. Now, NBA culture is very different. Uh, NBA culture, people generally care more about the 10th through 12th man on a roster than, like, the 3rd, 4th, or 5th. Like, if you get a good value signing as a free agent for $3 million on something or other, you'll get a fan base, you know, that was so smart, so great. Now that guy may play five minutes a game. But, man, they, they love that the Nets traded for Javon Carter, right. uh, even though they have Kevin Durant and, and Kyrie and, and all that stuff. So, um, and James Harden. But, um, yeah, I think... Marcus Garrett fits in well. I think the Heat actually used their developmental guys, which I think is important. Uh, it's a great culture, great organization. They used to have a rule that at practices, if you put your hands on your hips, like because you were tired, uh, you get fined. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that I've never heard a more Marcus Garrett thing of like, you know, you have to have your attitude right and do all these things. I mean, that's that's Marcus Garrett. So I think it's an ideal situation. Obviously, he's got to figure out the offensive package because they used him in, in the summer league as an off-ball guy. They didn't put him on the ball, and quite frankly, the Heat have several options you would want on the ball before you would ever give it to Marcus Garrett. You know, um, Forget about Kyle Lowry, who's a point guard for a second. In the NBA, your playmakers, your, your right. wings who can whatever. Jimmy Even Butler. Bam Adebayo is going to be a primary playmaker before Marcus Garrett. Uh, of course. Jimmy center, Butler, right? Bam Adebayo, yeah. you, you'd give it to Tyler, Tyler Hero. Hero. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So people are like, well, he could do this at point guard or you don't have to shoot without. No, he's going to be like their eighth point mm-hmm. guard on the team. But if he can be one of those long wing, you know, defender guards and, and just kind of play a smart enough offensive game, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks, well, he's got to make X percent of his threes because the difference between making 35 and 31 percent of your threes is making four more every time you shoot 100. Uh, that, to me, is not the biggest thing in the world, especially when you might take 100 threes over the course of a season. So if you want to tell me a difference of 0.3 points per game or whatever is a huge deal, I would say no. The bigger difference is, can you play smart offense to where the defense has to respect you and guard you? That, to me, has always been more important. I would rather have a 29% three-point shooter that gets guarded like a 40% three-point shooter than a 33% shooter who doesn't, a uh, three-point shooter who doesn't. So um, for Marcus Garrett, it's it's smart offense. Can you play within the system? Can you take advantage of your chances? But I think this is a great landing spot for him. 
Um, this is basically the opposite of what happened with Frank Mason, like when he went to the Kings, and then they like loaded up on point guards and he didn't have a spot. You didn't trust the organization. This is the opposite. The Heat are probably one of the most, if not the most trustworthy organizations for talent development in the country, um, or in the NBA, I guess I should say, and uh, Marcus Garrett fits their culture. So I, I think it's great for him. I think it's a great move all around, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does at the NBA because I, I suspect... We always say this, like, I could see this guy having a long yeah, career, yeah. X, Y, and Z. I, I could Rarely actually happen. see him, like, being like a Tony Allen or whatever mm-hmm. and just, this guy is still in the league and he's 35 or whatever. And, and like, yeah, I could see that yeah. for Marcus. And the guy I'm wondering, too, is, like, P.J. Tucker, you know? Yeah. Like, obviously a little bit of a different, like, Tucker's going to play more in the post yeah. than Marcus Garrett will, but just this idea of this versatile defender who can give you different positions. And that's the thing with P.J. Tucker. Once he developed, like, the ability to shoot a corner three, yeah. That was a big difference maker. So if Marcus, even if he just develops like the corner three, yeah, then that is a huge difference maker. But I agree. Like I think, like if you gave me Devon Dotson, Yudoka Buki, Marcus Garrett, who's going to last the longest in the NBA, I think I'd go Marcus Garrett. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And, and to your point on Tucker, a couple of differences. One, Tucker is the thickest human being. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's built like a bowling ball, but who's in good shape. So it's like unbelievable. Like I, he's like if Jerome Bettis was just like completely ripped and like there was no excess on his body. Like that's PJ Tucker. But yeah, you mentioned the. I think he led the NBA in corner three point shooting one year. And so for Marcus Garrett, that's obviously doesn't have to get know, that good. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to get up to. But again, if you're playing 15 minutes a game, wing defender, you get to prove your worth in the playoff uh, playoffs. You know, Wayne Seldon almost had that chance. I think he got some playoff minutes. He might have got some playoff starts uh, early in his career, but it, it didn't kind of materialize again that's when you talk about the organization and say the Miami Heat are gonna you know watch him this is a team that assigned you Dennis Haslam for contracts for he's still on the team I think he played three minutes last year and got ejected but they know the value of having a guy like that in the system um Oklahoma City was another one with Nick Collison I mean Nick Nick Collison got his jersey retired okay this is a dude I don't think he ever cracked 10 points a game in per game in scoring and for most of his career, was a non-factor on the court. And yet, he's got his jersey in the rafters in the arena, and the reason being just culture, what he what he meant to the organization. So, um, you know, I, I don't think Marcus Garrett will necessarily be that for a, a Heat franchise that's won some championships. But I, I think that's what, what you're kind of betting on with him, is culture, is ability, obviously his intelligence. He thinks the game. I mean, how many times do we talk to him? And he said, oh, I've already done my own film study before the team even has. Um, I think those things fit in so well in Miami. And I think Eric Spolstra specifically, who used to be like a video coordinator, I think he will love Marcus Garrett. I, I think that's a great pairing. He's Scott Chasen. Check out all his work, 247sports.com and at fog.net. Scott, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. All right, that's Scott Chasen. See him tomorrow on RCST. It's FM 1017 and 1320, KLWN. Depend on it. Bryson Stricker joins us in about 40 minutes here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320, KLWN. The college football season technically started last week. I mean, not technically. It did start last week. But that was week zero, and, you know, not many teams play. It was only like a handful of teams or a handful of games. I think it was like eight or nine FBS teams played last week. So far from a full slate of teams who ended up playing a week ago. And and this is the first full week. This is the week that you have a bunch of top 25 matchups. So before this week happens... Let's do a little uh, college football season preview. We had Stephen Lassen on about a week or two ago and did some 
favorite bets for the over-under win totals. You can listen back to that on the Best of RCST podcast, brought to you by Tommy's Express Car Wash. But as far as looking at like the national scope, who can win the title, dark horse teams who can make the playoff, Heisman contenders, I want to look at it from that standpoint. So the first thing to look at is the favorites for the national title game. So far in the playoff, it's been seven years of a sample size there. It's been Alabama three times, Clemson twice, LSU once, and Ohio State once. Not a lot of variety among the national champions during the college football playoff. And no team outside the AP top six in the preseason has won the playoff either. That eliminates a lot of teams who could possibly win it if that is the case again. Now, seven years overall is still a pretty small sample size, right? Um, It's not like 30 years of data that makes you think this has to be the way it is. But certainly, so far, what we've seen has been pretty consistent. And that is that Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma have combined for 20 of the 28 playoff appearances Basically, three out of four every year are one of those teams. There's only basically one of those teams getting left out. Usually, it's it's Ohio State or Oklahoma. And guess what? You look at the preseason poll. The only team that I didn't mention there is like Georgia and then Texas A&M. But Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, all projected to be top five teams once again this year. So it's probably safe to assume that one of those four is going to win the title this year, and it wouldn't be that crazy if all four made the playoff. Now, if you want to go with Georgia, go for it. But Georgia has to play Clemson this week in the non-con. Then they have to get through the SEC East. Then presumably play Alabama or Texas A&M in the SEC title game. So it is tough along their road unless they do win that first game. Now, if Georgia does win this first game against Clemson, At that point, like, I feel comfortable basically saying, like, they're in the playoff. Now, sure, yeah, if they lose two games from there. But at that point, it basically gives them a mulligan. If they beat Clemson and then lose to Alabama in the title game, they're still in the playoff. And even if, you know, if if you lose to Florida in the regular season after beating Clemson, lose another game but still win the SEC championship at 11-2 and you have the Clemson win, you're still getting in. So a lot can change based on that. But here's my picks for the playoff. I have Clemson going 13 and 0. I think they're going to beat Georgia this weekend. There's really nobody within them in the ACC. Like you specifically look at the division that Clemson is in, like Boston College, Wake Forest, NC State. Florida State's not on their A game right now. So there's nobody in that division that really even remotely scares you that they can pick off Clemson. North Carolina and Miami, I guess would be two on the other side of the division, but I don't really think either of those teams stand a chance against Clemson in an ACC championship game. There's still another level between where they are and where Clemson is. So Clemson's probably going undefeated. If they do lose a game, it's probably going to be this week to Georgia. Alabama, I have them going 12-1. and Alabama plays, as always, a tough schedule in the SEC. They start out this week with a top 15 Miami team. I could see them losing a game. You know, Ole Miss should be a top 25 team. LSU should be a top 25 team. Auburn should be near a top 25 team. Texas A&M should be a top 5 or 10 team this year. That's a lot of good opponents to play. Add on that you're playing Florida this year early in the season on the road, and you have a lot of new players into the team after you were so dominant a year ago. I could see them tripping up once, but at the end of the day, it is still Alabama, so they go 12-1. and Probably give them the two seed at that point with Clemson going undefeated. Oklahoma, 
I think we'll go 12 and one. In picking each game individually, I came out of it saying, oh, well, I think Oklahoma's going to win every game. But odds would just tell you, because this is what has happened with Oklahoma each and every year, they lose one game that they shouldn't. They get tripped up in a game that they shouldn't. Last year was Kansas State. They've gotten tripped up before by Iowa State. They've gotten tripped up by Texas. It just seems like they always trip up one of those games. I'm just going to pick that to happen again. But I still think they make the playoff because I don't think they'll trip up a second time. And they go 12-1 and one and get in. And the last one I think will get in is Ohio State at 12-1. and one. Now, this is the one I'm most shaky on. Ohio State has a lot of new players after last year making the run to the title game. You have a new quarterback. and He's a freshman quarterback. And obviously, that hasn't been an issue for Ohio State in the past. Ryan Day, it doesn't matter who's a quarterback so far. Like, they turned Cardell Jones, who's been a huge bust in the NFL so far, into a guy who threw like 50 touchdown passes. In college football. So it's not overly concerning that they have a freshman quarterback, but when you don't have that superhuman and Justin Fields playing there, in addition to having youth and questions at other spots around the field, questions compared to these other like top five teams, maybe it is a situation where Ohio State can drop one. But Penn State coming off a bad year, Michigan coming off a bad year. Who's going to really test them in that Big Ten East? I do think they'll they'll lose one and, and drop one, but I feel like they're just still so far ahead of the rest of the Big Ten that I'm not going to predict them to lose twice. And I think 12-1 and one gets you in, barring a group of five team going undefeated, like Cincinnati. And they're probably the only group of five team that a one loss wouldn't make it over. And even then, one loss Big Ten winner probably still makes it over Cincinnati. At that point, it's just that, or does a second SEC team make it, or does a Pac-12 winner get one loss and get in over you? Still probably wouldn't happen. So those are going to be my four. I'm going to be very boring. Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Ohio State. I'm super basic. As far as picking a winner, I guess I'll go a little different there just with who's in the title game. I really like this Oklahoma team. I'm, I'm tempted to pick Oklahoma to win it all. I'm going to go with Clemson, though, over Oklahoma in the title game. If you're looking at odds, like Alabama's plus 260, Clemson's plus 525, Oklahoma's plus 650, same with Georgia, and then you have Ohio State at 7-1. to one. You have to go all the way down to 22-1 to one to find the next team outside of those five, and that's Texas A&M. I mean, there's, there's a real chance that Georgia is like the second best team in the country, but just because, or third best team, but just because they'd have to get through Clemson and Alabama, who could be one and two, they don't make it. But yeah, there, there's that big jump down to Texas A&M. I also don't think... This year, you're going to have as dominant of a one team like last year's Alabama or two years ago, Clemson. I'd be really intrigued by either Oklahoma plus 650. They've solved some of their defensive issues. They had a top 15 defense by ESPN SB plus a season ago, and now they return a good amount of those defenders. That defense could be really good for Oklahoma this year. We know what they're going to get on offense with Lincoln Riley. Now they have one of the best running games in the country with Kennedy Brooks and Eric Gray. On top of it, you have Spencer Rattler in another year. Marvin Mims is one of the best receivers. They tend to always have the best offensive lines. Like, everywhere you look on this team, it is star-studded. This, to me, seems like the best Oklahoma team, at least since the Baker Mayfield team, that I think they could make some noise. Clemson, last year they had some youth on the defensive side of the ball. You get James Scalzi back at the linebacker position. The secondary was the biggest position of youth and now those guys get another year older and we know these are four and five star recruits in there so that experience once you pair with the talent should lead to it being really good but the thing that should carry Clemson the most is two things one DJ Uyunglele the quarterback is a Heisman candidate right off the bat he was fantastic filling in for Trevor Lawrence last year 
but it's also the defensive line. Clemson might have the best defensive line in the country. It's probably either them or Texas A&M or maybe Georgia. I mean, Alabama's always up there, so you got to throw them in that situation. But that's been the recipe for success. The Clemson teams that have won it all, those D-lines have been dominant units for them. So I would go with either the value. I mean, especially, like, if Alabama and Clemson had the same value, then I'd get going Alabama. But you can get Clemson and basically double the odds of Alabama. I'd be all about that. Even Oklahoma, plus 650. If you'd want to go Ohio State or Georgia, I'd get that as well. I think there's a little bit of value there. Outside of that, you get on to the second tier of contenders list, and you start kind of with where Texas A&M is um, at 22-1 to 1 to win it all. Some books, I, f- I found one that had them at 40-1 to 1 to win them all. And you can get them basically 4-1, to 5-1 to 1 odds to just make the playoff. A&M should have really good skill players. They're going to have that studly defensive line, defense overall. O-line was dominant last year, but you lost a lot of talent there, and now you have a new QB, Haynes King. Those are big question marks, but with how they've recruited and Jimbo Fisher's track record, I'd assume they're good to go there. Now, if they lose to Alabama but win the rest, which is made tougher, you have road trips, LSU, Ole Miss. If you do that, an 11-1 A&M that doesn't have to take a conference championship game loss, they might be in good shape. Probably better than they were this year because Notre Dame was in the ACC last year, and that got them maybe over the hump from where A&M was. But I have A&M going 10-2. If you are looking for the best bet of a team in this second tier, it probably is them, and that's reflected by the odds. Um, North Carolina, kind of interesting, I guess. Found them at 50 to 1 to win it all, 11 to 1 to make the playoff. I can see why you'd get on board with this. It's an exciting team. They have maybe the best quarterback in the country in Sam Howell. That means a lot. I love Mac Brown. But to get there, you're talking about a team that have to get through Clemson in the ACC after losing two stud receivers, losing two stud running backs. I'm not sure the offense is going to be as explosive. I think this is closer to a 9 and 3, 10 and 2 team. And again, even if you do find your way to 11 and 1, you beaten Clemson in the ACC championship? I don't think so. So I wouldn't bet on that one. Uh, Cincinnati is 150 to 1 to win it all. They're 14 to 1 to make the playoff. They're not winning the title. Let's get our head around that. It's already going to be a big enough climb for them just to make the playoff, for a group of five team just to make the playoff. But a 14 to 1 odds, I actually don't mind that for Cincinnati. You got a ton back. Defense should be really good again. Desmond Ritter is a beast at quarterback. I know the committee has constantly slighted group of five teams. And that was the case for Cincinnati last year. But I don't think you're going to have an ability to slight Cincinnati this year if they go undefeated. For two reasons. One, what they did last year, which shouldn't matter. It should be just based on that one independent year. But it does. Case in point, UCF reached uh, as high as they reached the year before at the end of the year. They reached that point just because of the fact that they had that built-up equity of going undefeated the year before. And the next year, they were a worse team. They ended up losing. Um, And then the second point, Cincinnati has the schedule because you play non-con opponents who could help you out there. You play Indiana, who's ranked in the top 20 right now. Now, I'm a little skeptical that Indiana will finish in the top 25, but that could be a good win. And then the big one is Notre Dame. That's a top 12 team. That could be a team who finishes in the top 10 in the playoff range. So if you win both those games, in addition to the AAC schedule, I think they're in as long as the team in that fourth spot isn't a 12-1 Power 5 Conference champion, which right now I have that as with Ohio State. But like I said, 
I could see Ohio State going 11-2 and two with some new players, a lot of youth, a lot of new inexperienced players getting into that to where, okay, you have a 13-0 and 0 Cincinnati versus an 11-2 and 2 Ohio State. I think given at that point Cincinnati would have to beat Notre Dame, Indiana, I think Cincinnati could make it. So I actually don't mind the 14-1 value bet on them making the playoff. Iowa State is the other team in the Big 12 in this second-tier discussion. They are 40-1 to 1 to win it all. I found it one book, 5-1 to 1 to make the playoff. This is another one I don't think even at 40 to 1 it's the best bet to win the title but 5 to 1 to make the playoff is interesting. I I'm kind of on board that they're not going to be in the Big 12 title game and one of these other teams from that next tier could usurp them. So I wouldn't take it. But hey, if you win the Big 12 that puts you in that discussion and they split with OU last year, they have so many starters back. I don't think that would be the worst bet in the world. Then for the second tier of competitors, you have whoever wins the Pac 12. Good luck trying to figure out who that's going to be. Talent-wise, it should be Oregon. But Oregon is starting Anthony Brown, who was a quarterback at Boston College a couple years ago, who lost to Kansas. And I know I shouldn't hold that one game against you so much. But also, like, he wasn't really spectacular at Boston College in general. I have a hard time believing, even if they have the best roster in the Pac-12, I have a hard time believing with that quarterback situation, you're going to have enough to make the playoff. Now, maybe that's enough to win the Pac-12, you know, and go 10-3. and three, But I don't think it has enough to make the playoff. Now, you can get them at 66-1. to one. Same with the rest of the Pac-12 teams. They have high odds. Washington's 100-1. to one. USC 100-1. to one. Arizona State 125. Utah's 200-1. to one. I wouldn't take any of those. But where you get interesting is if you're talking about making the college football playoff. Oregon at plus 650, still not interested in that. Washington and USC, both at 10 to 1. USC has all kinds of talent on the roster. They have a really good quarterback in Keaton Slovis. Can they finally put it together and maybe make the playoff? 10 to 1, that's not bad odds because if they do go 12 and 1, win the Pac 12, and they're going to get media attention being at USC, that might be enough. Now, Washington, sort of interesting. They've made the playoff before. Arizona State, maybe. Utah 22 to 1 to make the playoff is very intriguing to me. This is a team that consistently has a good defense. Charlie Brewer transfers over from Baylor. So you got an experienced quarterback in there. They always have a good running back and a good run game. I would probably be interested in sprinkling there with Utah 22 to 1. And then the last one in this second tier of discussion, Notre Dame. They're 80 to 1 to win it all, 7 to 1 to make the playoff. I kind of view them the same way as Oregon. Like love the roster overall. Kyron Williams is a really good running back. The offensive line always is really good with Notre Dame. The defense is always really good with Notre Dame. Jack Cohn, the former Wisconsin quarterback, he's fine. Should be good enough for them to get 9-10 wins. Is he good enough to be on a team that can go 11-1 and 12-0? I don't know. When you look at the schedule, it's pretty tough. Starting September, the last week of September, I believe September 25th, and going through the end of October, this is who they play. Wisconsin on a neutral field. Cincinnati, at Virginia Tech, USC, and North Carolina. There is one bye week in between there, but that is a tough slate of games. You're probably losing one game, might be losing two games. Heck, you could even lose three games there, especially because I don't really trust Jack Cohn. I don't think Ian Book was, you know, he wasn't a Heisman contender at quarterback, but he was a good college quarterback. I still think it's a drop-off between what you had with Ian Book to Jack Cohn, and, like, I feel like Notre Dame is that Deshaun Watson level, Trevor Lawrence level quarterback. If they had that guy with everything else they already have, that's how you turn them into a national title team. But right now they just don't have that. So I wouldn't bet on them there. Although 7-1 to make the playoff isn't the worst odds in the world. And then 
you have your dark horse contenders. TCU is 30-1 to to make the playoff. All about that. I think TCU is going to be in the Big 12 title game with Iowa State. It's been too long between really good teams with Gary Patterson. He tends to have these little cycles where he goes through this. They finally have a incumbent quarterback back. They have a stud running game led by Zach Evans. The defense is always really good under Gary Patterson. So I don't mind that because if they just make it to the Big 12 title game, upset Oklahoma, you're in the discussion. So 30-1, to 1, I don't mind that at all. Penn State, Michigan, or Iowa basically take your pick of who you like next best. Maybe you're on Wisconsin or something in the Big Ten. I'd be interested in Iowa. You're not in the same league as Ohio State or in the same side of it as Ohio State. Maybe makes it a little easier to win your division. Go to the Big Ten title game, 14-1. to 1. They got some really good returners. Have their quarterback and running back back. They always are good on the offensive and defensive line. That would be one that's interesting to me. Remember, they went 12-0 and 0 a couple years ago in the regular season before losing a close one in the Big Ten title game. And then Boise State, they're 50-1 to 1 to make the playoff. First year of a new coach at Boise State have won the Fiesta Bowl the last two times. And they play at Central Florida. They host Oklahoma State. They play at BYU. And then in Mountain West play, you get Nevada, who could be an 8-9, 10-win team. San Jose State could be an 8-9, 10-win team that you could play in the conference title game, among others. That's interesting. Florida, interesting one. 12-1 to to make the playoff. 56-1 to to win the title. Issue here is the schedule. You have Alabama in Week 3. You have games against Georgia, Kentucky, you play at LSU, you have Florida State at Missouri, among others. That's a really tough schedule. But pretty much it comes down to, can you go one and one between the Alabama and Georgia games and be perfect the rest of the way? Offense should be there. Defense was questionable last year, but historically, Florida's had a really good defense. So I bet there's a little bit of bounce back this season. I kind of think Florida might end up with that schedule going like eight and four. But I'm open to the puncher's chance that some of these guys that we haven't heard of because they're replacing guys like Kadarius Toney and Kyle Pitts and Kyle Trask, that some of these guys could end up being better than we think. And all of a sudden, Florida's a great value pick, and they go 11-1, and and they win the SEC East. Or, heck, maybe they go 11-1, and they upset Alabama, but then they lose to Georgia. They're not even in the SEC title game, and that's better at 11-1 and because you don't have to take that second loss and you make the playoff. So that's not a bad one either. I think, obviously, I'm still basic and going with Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma in the playoff. Clemson beating OU in the title. But if I was placing bets based on all these, I think I'd go OU and Clemson to win it all. Sprinkling on TCU, Iowa, and Utah to make the playoff and a sprinkling on Florida to either make the playoff or win it all. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Coming up on the other side, Let's talk about the Heisman. There are actually some weird numbers when you go back and look at the past Heisman winners and how the favorites haven't really done so well in that regard. This is RCST. Did you know the last 10 Heisman winners, none of them, were the preseason betting favorites coming into the year. Now, I only went 10 years back. It, sometimes the further back you go, it becomes a little tougher to find the preseason odds. So I went back and looked over the last 10 years. Um, and let's try to use this to decipher, you know, a possible Heisman candidate, or a possible Heisman winner this year. Obviously, Devontae Smith won it last year as a receiver. 
That is the exception, not the rule. Since 2000, 17 quarterbacks have won the Heisman compared to just three running backs and that one wide receiver. So if you're narrowing it down, who you think is going to win, first of all, your best bet is take a quarterback, especially after a year where we did see an exception. Now, how often has the Heisman winner been even near the top of the list of favorites? Because like I said, the favorite has not won each of the last 10 years. Headed into 2011, Andrew Luck was the favorite, followed by Landry Jones, Marcus Lattimore, Denard Robinson, LaMichael James, Trent Richardson, Justin Blackman, and a few others. RG3, who ended up winning the award, started the preseason 11th. He was 20-1 odds. Outside of the top 10. Headed into 2012, Matt Barkley was the favorite. He's followed by Monte Ball, Denard Robinson, Geno Smith, Landry Jones, and a handful of others. You have to go all the way down to off the board to get Johnny Manziel. He wasn't even on the Heisman board. I guess you would just have to request a custom bet for that. I don't even know if you could do that. Johnny Manziel wasn't even on the board. So again, another, not even in the top 10. Headed into 2013, Johnny Manziel, after winning it in 2012, was the favorite to repeat. He was followed by Braxton Miller, TJ Yeldon, AJ McCarron, Jadavion Clowney. That was just like throwing your money away, basically. And then a handful of others. You have to go down to 33 to 1 odds outside of the top 10 to find Jameis Winston. 2014, Jameis Winston was the favorite, followed by Marcus Mariota. And Mariota was second. He won the war award in 2014. So he was the guy who was very close to being the favorite who did win the award. But most of these others so far have not been the case. 2015, Trayvon Boykin entered as the favorite, followed by Ezekiel Elliott, JT Barrett, Nick Chubb, Cody Kessler, Leonard Fournette. You have to go all the way down to 11th on the odd sheet to find the winner. That was Derrick Henry. Again, not outside or not inside the top 10. Headed into 2016, Deshaun Watson was the favorite, followed by Leonard Fournette. Christian McCaffrey, JT Barrett, Dalvin Cook. Keep on going down the list. Eventually, you get down to 50 to 1 odds to find Lamar Jackson. Then, again, outside of the top 10, headed into 2017, Sam Darnold was the favorite, followed by Saquon Barkley. You had Baker Mayfield tied third with Lamar Jackson and JT Barrett. Baker Mayfield would go on to win the award. So Baker Mayfield, Marcus Mariota, guys who were near the favorites, weren't the favorite, but were near the favorites, who won the award. The others we mentioned, outside the top 10. Headed into 2018, Tua was the co-favorite with Bryce Love, followed by Jonathan Taylor, Dwayne Haskins, Trace McSorley, Jake Fromm, and others. And 12th on the list was Kyler Murray. Ended up winning the award. 2019, Tua, Trevor Lawrence were co-favorites, followed by Justin Fields, Jalen Hurts, DeAndre Swift, Jonathan Taylor, so on down the list. You have to go all the way down to 200 to 1 odds to find where Joe Burrow is, not even in the top 10 and well below it as well. Headed into 2020, Justin Fields was the favorite, followed by Trevor Lawrence, Jamie Newman, Spencer Rattler, Sam Ellinger, Derek King, Mac Jones, so on down the list. You have to go down to 100 to 1 odds to find Devontae Smith. So to recap, that means... That the past 10 winners, 8 of the 10 started outside the top 10 in Heisman odds, and none were the prohibitive favorite. Also, 8 of 10 were quarterbacks. And also of note, this only applies to the last 7 because 
That's when the college football playoff has been around. Lamar Jackson was the only one who didn't make the college football playoff. Six of the other seven did. So if I were to use those parameters to find a nice little value pick, that means you're eliminating some big names, obviously. Bye-bye, anybody in the top 10. Spencer Rattler, DJ, DJ Uwe Ungalale, JT Daniels, Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Sam Howell, Matt Corral, Derek King, Keaton Slovis, Bajon Robinson, gone. I, like I said, wouldn't take any non-quarterbacks. That eliminates notables like Brian Robinson in Alabama, Brees Hall at Iowa State, John Mechie third at Alabama, other Alabama skill players, and more. And of the remaining guys, these are the ones that kind of sifting through, again, who are not in the top 10 of odds, who are quarterbacks, who have a chance, I think, to maybe make the college football playoff that I think are possibly pretty interesting. One is Haynes King at Texas A&M. We don't know a lot about this kid. But Jimbo Fisher tends to recruit and develop quarterbacks very well. Won a Heisman with Jameis Winston with Winston in his first year. AM is going to be one of the best teams in the country. Could make a college football playoff. You can get Haynes King at 35 to 1. Brock Purdy, Iowa State, is going to be in playoff contention. He's 35 to 1. Desmond Ritter mentioned Cincinnati's path that they actually have it with the schedule. He's 40 to 1, and he is very good. And then Florida, who I mentioned, the path is there, even though it's very difficult. They have a new quarterback taken over who was a five-star recruit, dual-threat quarterback. His name is Emery Jones. He played limited time last year in certain packages. He is dynamic as both passer and runner. You can get him at 40-1. to The Emory Jones one is more of a ticket on the fact that you have to hope Florida does well against that tough schedule, but if they do, you're riding pretty. Otherwise, I think the guy I'm circling is Desmond Ritter because there's a real chance of going 12-0, which would mean a real chance of making the playoff since you're playing Notre Dame and Indiana. Desmond Ritter's really good. He's a pro prospect, so he's going to be getting love and attention. And if you lead the first group of five team into the college football playoff, boom, there's the guy, Desmond Ritter, right there. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Bryson Stricker talks KU football with us on the other side. All right, welcome back in. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We're joined now by first-time guest, I believe, on RCST. That would be one Bryson Stricker of Rock Chalk It Up. Bryson, how's it going today? Thank you for making your RCST debut. It's going well, man. I, I'm currently literally about 30 feet away from the football stadium, man. I'm excited. I'm back at Lawrence for the first time in a while, man. I'm excited for Vermont Ives. Yep, 7 o'clock. You can hear right here on KLWN. We'll have a live show out at Mama's Tamale Shop, 4.30 to 5.30. I'll be there with Scott Chasen. So, Bryson, the starting quarterback, that has been the biggest storyline, or I guess lack of storyline, because there hasn't been anything yet for who that's going to be for KU. And a couple weeks ago, it felt like it was trending toward Miles Kendrick. Seems like recently it might be going to Jason Bean. Is that the direction that you think this thing's going to wind up in once we get to tomorrow night at 7 o'clock? Yeah, I, I think that is the direction. And it is kind of crazy. Like, I mean, two weeks ago, I tweeted out that Jason Bean was out of the race. <laughs> you know, it, it, it just shows you how crazy college athletics are. to show you how nothing's ever certain, you know. And I think Jason Bean honestly stepped up in the past two weeks. Jalen Daniels was unable to participate in some activities for a while. And I think Jason Bean just took advantage of those opportunities. He was third string for all of fall camp and was not really getting reps with the ones. And then he got those opportunities and took advantage of them. And I think 
what makes me feel really good about it is that I know this staff is prioritizing someone who's going to take care of the ball. You've heard Lance Leipold say it. You've heard Andy Kotelnicki say it. They want to take care of the ball. So they deem Miles Kendrick to be that guy that will take care of the ball. So if people are passing him in the depth chart, that means that they now have that confidence in Jason Bean or in a Jalen Daniels uh, if they're going to get some play as well. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good sign if, if that is the case. So if Jason Bean is the guy, what does that mean for the others? What does that mean for Miles Kendrick? What does that mean for Jalen Daniels? So I heard early in the week, someone who, who supplies me some pretty good information told me that he was very surprised that Jalen Daniels was still getting so many reps with the ones. And that it's like, hey, you know, Jason Bean is the guy that, you know, is clearly showing he's the best. He's the guy that it sounds like everyone's going to go with. Why is Jalen Daniels still getting reps with the ones? I think what it's going to come out to is I think that Jalen Daniels is also going to play tomorrow night. I don't know if it's going to be specific packages. I don't know how it's going to be installed, but I would I would put a very large wager on both quarterbacks, Jason Bean and Jalen Daniels playing tomorrow night. And I think with Jalen Daniels is that he, when he was unable to throw, was obviously just falling back from the depth chart. You're not going to move up if, you, if you're not able to throw the football. But I've heard since he's came back, at times he's been the most impressive quarterback. And I know the staff also feels that Jalen Daniels has the most talent he just also sometimes has the worst flaws and doesn't take care of the football and doesn't necessarily understand the offense as well. I mean, the kid's 18 years old. You can't really blame him for that. So I think if Jalen Daniels can go out there Friday night in the time that he gets out there, if he shows off well, you know, maybe he ends up being the quarterback next week. But for all as far as I'm concerned, I think Jason Bean is going to be the guy uh, that takes the first snap to run out. It's just so interesting, the the dynamics of this thing from going from Kendrick being seemingly QB one. And then I, I was the guy who asked Lance Leipold at the open practice about, you know, what the quarterback kind of usage would be. And he said, we could have packages for other guys, which just off the top of your head makes you think, okay, well that makes sense for Jason Bean if he's not the starter, because he can bring an element that the other guys can't with his electrifying speed. Not that like a Jalen Daniels is still athletic, but it's not Jason Bean level. So um, I guess if they are going to play other formations and use two quarterbacks with Jalen Daniels, what would be the benefit of doing that? Like, like, how do you see that coming together and why would they want to do that? I think that the thing I take away from that is that I honestly think they don't want a lot of quarterback running. Mind you, I think Jason Bean has terrific skill set running the ball. But if you look at what they did at Buffalo, the quarterback didn't run the ball a lot. And I know John Kirby, J.F. Slant, he said the same thing. He's like, they don't use the quarterback to run the ball a lot. Jason Bean, however, can run the ball very well. So you have to use him some way or another. But I just see it more as like maybe Jalen Daniels can run their base offense better. But the thing is, Jason Bean takes care of the ball a little bit better and then also was able to make a play if things break down. So I'll be interested to see, you know, if there are any changes or maybe it's like, hey, Jalen's going to run the same thing. He just might be able to run it better if he can work on those flaws that he has. I mean, are you expecting this to be something where we do see rotating quarterbacks between at least the two of them? Or do you think it's uh, something maybe where it is just about a few formations or it is a scripted thing? Like, like how do you envision the choreography of, of kind of putting this together from the staff being? I would have to think it's going to be choreographed in some way, shape or form. I don't see it. You know, people panic. They think about back under David Beatty where it's like, hey, a quarterback made a bad pass. The new quarterback came in the next drive. I don't think it's going to be like that. I don't think Jason Bean's going to get pulled if he turns the ball over or doesn't score on the first or two, second drive. What I think it'll be is like there's going to be a certain time in the game or a certain moment, barring Jason Bean being the next Todd Reesing, 
uh, in the first quarter. Barring that moment, I think they're going to say, hey, Jalen Daniels, it is now your turn to say, what can you do on the field with the lights on against an opponent that wants to rip your head off? Because one thing I've always thought is that I thought Jalen Daniels does have the physical tools. He has an insane arm. He's mobile enough. But the problem is he remembers last year that he snapped the ball and looked up and there was three people trying to rip his head off. That doesn't happen at fall camp. That doesn't happen at practice. So when he gets into a game and someone is trying to rip his head off again, is he going to make those same mistakes he was making last year? Or has he matured? Has Coach Zabrowski gotten that gotten him past that? And I think if he gets him past that, and I think he can be. I do agree that he is the most talented quarterback. It's just more of he has flaws. There's a reason probably why he was a two-star prospect. It's a matter of whether or not he can develop and show that, hey, you know what, these physical tools that I have, I have refined them. I can't use them in a game setting. Yeah, I just I just hope it doesn't turn into something where, you know, if you want to see what both those guys look at versus game action, that makes sense. I just hope it's not something where it's, hey, you're going to play two drives or you're going to play two drives and to where, because we've seen this before, where one of the quarterbacks plays and leads a touchdown drive looks good and then immediately the next drive it's that other quarterback because you're just sticking to the script like I I feel like you have to be able to detour from that and if somebody has the hot hand just roll with it you know yeah I agree and I I would assume just looking at what they did at Buffalo I see them as a staff that is not going to do that I mean they adapt to the scenario Jason Bean goes out there tomorrow night and we score on every drive he goes out there Maybe they never put Jalen Daniels in. Say, hey, Jason Bean's leading this offense, doing what he wants, doing where he wants. Jalen Daniels can come in when we're up 30 points, you know. I I would see that as a scenario. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I do think there will come a time. I don't know the script. They haven't told me. Uh, You know, but I think that Jalen Daniels will get his reps and just no matter what he does with those. Yeah, and it's definitely interesting that it would be those two guys as well because if that is the case, like this isn't just about a QB battle for game one the rest of this season I mean at that point like those are the two guys that because Miles Kendrick's going to be gone after either those are the two guys that are going to be in the QB competition again next year anyway so whoever can get the head start on this year I would imagine is going to have that big first step into next season as well yeah I agree with you and I think Kansas fans have been waiting a long time you know to have a quarterback that is you know he's going to be the starter barring some unforeseen circumstance so I think that is something that I imagine the staff knows and I think people should be excited that there is a good chance that we get through this season and we're going to return whoever was playing the best. And hopefully, you know, it's one of these two guys. Uh, we're talking with Bryson Stricker, Rock Chalk It Up here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Just looking at the depth chart as a whole outside of of the quarterback, the, the two things I think that stood out to a lot of people, maybe some omissions, Devin Neal at the running back position, not there as the third string and uh, Steven Parker, not there listed on the two deep for the running or for the defensive ends. As far as the running backs with Devin Neal, I, I was kind of making this comparison. I couldn't totally remember the exact situation. And I know Puka Williams ended up didn't not playing in that first game against Nichols state due to, I think they were like academic or some other issue that kept him out of the game. But on that initial depth chart, I believe his freshman year, he was listed as like a second or third stringer, but then immediately once he got on the field and started to show what he could do against division one athletes, it was very clear. Like he was the guy is that, do you think a possibility with what could happen with Devin Neal? Yeah, I, I do 100%. I think on the first episode of my podcast, Alex Charlton pointed it out. It's like Devin Neal's role tomorrow night is going to be a lot smaller than it'll be week 12 or week 13, you know, whatever our last couple of games. Like Devin Neal is going to grow into his role. I mean, the kid also literally just turned 18 years old. I think for him, it's just going to be a matter of like making sure the game 
is getting processed when he's out there and, you know, working on the small things like blocking, you know, last year, I know Amari Pisek Hickson was, was getting reps because everyone else was injured, but the coaches weren't satisfied with his blocking. Well, he's worked on that and now he's the best blocker of the running back. So it's going to be, Devin's going to have to prove that he's can't only be out there on the field when he's going to run the ball, because then the other team's going to know this kid can't block. So he's out here because he's going to get the ball. So I think, Devin's role is going to grow, but I do think he is going to play a role. I think Devin Neal is going to play a lot tomorrow night. So I just think it's a matter of, you know, how much, where does he actually fall in that pecking order? I don't see very many scenarios that he's not at least second, if not first in that pecking order by the end of the year. Yeah. Running back is one of the positions I'm just most interested to watch. Like how do they use them? How do different players do well in certain situations? The other position, which normally it's, I mean, it's a very unsexy position to be excited to watch, but uh, given where the offensive line was last year and given how there's been a lot of talk of that this could be a really improved unit this season and you see it from just players growth in terms of both physically mentally of gaining a year of experience transfers coming into the program when you look at the offensive line I think the easy answer would be Mike Nowitzki outside of Mike Nowitzki who's the offensive lineman you're going to be most interested in seeing what he looks like on Friday night um, I'm going to say Earl Bostic a left tackle because I, I think I've seen Kansas fans for years yelling, like, why is he not playing last year? I mean, even people were like, why is he not playing left tackle? Why is he not playing left tackle? And it's something I remember. He came in as like a tight end defensive end and then got moved to that left tackle spot. Left tackle spot. And I think that's the right spot for him. I, but I thought he was all right at tight end. I'm excited to see what he does in that role because he's pretty concrete in that role. Doesn't really have immediate competition right behind him. So that means obviously the staff is confident in him. So I'm excited to see what he can do. But I also think it's probably worth mentioning left guard. Malik Clark got a lot of heat last year. PFF was not a big fan um, of his performances at left tackle. But I think he's more suited as a guard. You saw him in 2019, or 2019 playing well at the left guard spot, moved out the left tackle, got exposed. And then the Texas Tech game last year, he was able to move back to the inside and performed well. So I'm excited to see, make sure that he's continued to develop and uh, performs well as well. Okay, defensive side of the ball mentioned the Steven Parker thing. What does that mean? Because you're talking about a guy that, you know, he's a former four-star recruit. Now he's heading into his, I guess, third season. I don't know what you classify him as with the off year with COVID and everything, but a guy that you would expect to take a big leap, but he wasn't on that too deep. So what does that mean for Steven Parker, or is that just better news for the guys in front of him? So it was a little bit of both. I think what I used to get intrigued by was that Stephen Parker was like getting dropped into coverage at times last year. I think he almost had an interception in one game. So it was like Stephen Parker is a guy that should be blitzing the quarterback. We all know that he's listed behind Kyron Johnson, who also just blitzes the quarterback. And so what I take away from Stephen Parker not being listed on there is that it's probably more of a testament towards Hayden Hatcher because – I think Stephen Parker still does need to develop his body a little bit more and refine his game a little bit more. But at the same time, he is a talented kid. When he's gotten out there, he has shown that he is a talented kid. So it's not like he's just a complete bust or anybody to write off at any point. I think it is more of a testament to the fact that I think Hayden Hatcher is a pretty talented kid. I mean, if people remember, he was offered at like a satellite camp over Les Miles' first summer here. They offered him, he ended up coming here, you know, and he hasn't seen a lot of playing time, but he's a really solid athlete, really well built. I know Coach Gildersleeve has got him into better shape as well. So I think it's more of a testament to Hayden Hatcher moving ahead of him rather than Stephen Parker not working out. Yeah, plus he missed time, so who knows? It. I mean, like you said with Jalen Daniels, it's hard to move up the depth chart when you're not playing, and, and that's just unfortunate for him, but I could see him having an impact as the season goes on. How about that linebacking core? That's another unit that really struggled a season ago. 
I, I did the linebacker preview earlier this week, and it seems like there's a lot more depth on that linebacker unit, but obviously there's still questions. What do you think the confidence level is in that unit this year compared to a season ago? I would say my confidence level isn't necessarily like super high, but one thing I tell people that have, you know, asked, like, is Gavin DePotter developing or, or I'm still worried about this position, that position. I think you're, that linebacker group is really like five or six people. And some of them are listed at different positions. Like we're not going to have Nate Betts, Gavin Potter and Taiwan Berryhill all out there at the same time, every down, like that's going to come to a point where it's going to be a four, two, five, you know, some more like a, a three, two, six, you know, there is going to be multiple variations of this defense. And you're going to see a Jason Gilliam, who's a freshman that has been very impressive since he early enrolled early uh, last year in the winter. And then also OJ Burroughs as well is going to be a guy that they're listed at safety, but don't be surprised to see one of those linebackers pulled off the field and one of them fill in that role, you know, to cover people in the slot and things like that. So I don't have a ton of confidence because I don't really think there's a reason to have a ton of confidence. But at the same time, though, I do think we have plenty of players that are going to play a variety of roles. And I more look at it as there's a bunch of people who can do one individual thing or two individual things. We don't necessarily have a Ben Heaney or a Joe Denine that you can feel confident being out there every down. But Gavin Potter has, you know, cut some weight, gotten into some better shape. He's going to be the guy out there probably the most. And Tywan Berryhill, when he did play last year, I know he got injured in one of the last games. But Tywan Berryhill was also very impressive, you know, last year when he was out there as well. All right, how many interceptions do the freshman DBs get tomorrow night? <laughs> tomorrow night, I'm going to say one. Mm. But over the season, I would bet our leading interceptor is a freshman, 100%. I'm, I'm all aboard the O.J. Burroughs train. I don't, I don't know if he'll play as much as some of the other freshmen, but I think he could have a, a really good year as kind of a secondary safety. And then next year, you're going into it with a senior Kenny Logan and sophomores in Gilliam and O.J. Burroughs and feeling really good about that unit next year. Well, thank you, Bryson, for the time. Appreciate you uh, sharing some insight on the KU football team. That is Bryson Stricker. You can check out his podcast, Rock Chalk It Up. Bryson, thank you so much for the time and looking forward to tomorrow night. Thank you so for having me on. All right, that was Bryson Stricker of Rock Chalk It Up joining us here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson, two hours down, one to go. Welcome back in. Five o'clock hour here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We'll be live at Mama's Tamale Shop, 4.30, tomorrow here on RCST with Scott Chasen. Our final positional preview we got to get to is the safeties. The starters in the lineup for KU, Ricky Thomas, a five foot ten, 185-pound super senior, along with Kenny Logan, the six foot 205-pound junior. Logan was really good as an underclassman last year one of the leaders on the team, one of the best players on the team. He'll also, you'll see him returning kicks in the return game at times, and he'll be pretty involved all throughout. They give this unit a, a pretty good amount of experience at the back end, and that's important, especially when you have Deuce Mayberry, Jacoby Bryant, that's a sophomore freshman at one corner spot, Romello Dotson, another freshman starting at the other corner spot, and then the backup safeties, Ricky Thomas, who's a 5'10", 185, or not Ricky Thomas, excuse me, O.J. Burroughs, who's a 5'10", 175-pound freshman, and Jason Gilliam, a 6'2", 205-pound freshman. That's two more freshmen. So a lot of inexperience around them in that secondary besides those two guys and then your backup corner on one of the spots in Jeremy Webb. That means there's a lot entrusted on them in terms of just having that experience, taking the young guys under their wings, and 
kind of being, I mean, you're the last line of defense as the safeties, and you're also kind of the quarterback of that secondary. So getting the guys in the right position, that is part of your job as well, and it's important to have upperclassmen in those safety spots, and KU has just that. As far as how those guys who are returning, again, we don't have, you know, a full amount of a bunch of guys returning at that safety spot with so much inexperience to tell you that, yeah, this guy uh, graded like this. This guy graded like that for KU a season ago. But we did see Kenny Logan log well over 400 snaps, and he was one of the team's better defenders. Now, it's not elite grades, but he was one of the better defenders. In fact, among safeties, he was the highest-rated safety. Technically, it was John Quay Lewis, but John Quay Lewis only played five snaps. I was actually impressed with John Quay Lewis, and I believe he's moved over to more of a corner role. Um, when I saw him in open practice, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Kenny Logan had the top safety grade outside of that. He was 65 overall, about a 66 in run defense, 61 and a half as a tackler, 91 as a pass rusher. It was in three snaps, but apparently really good pass rusher, 62 in coverage. And that was as an underclassman. If you take a few steps up here or there, then you're looking at possibly an all-Big 12 caliber player in Kenny Logan and what he can provide for you at the safety position. Thomas, meanwhile, logged the most snaps for you at the safety position. He had 516 snaps on the season, about half of them in run defense, about half of them in coverage. And he had a little bit tougher of a season, 47 overall grade, 55 run defense, 57 tackling. Again, good pass rushing grade, but where he really struggled was in coverage, 41 and a half coverage grade. And when I look at some of these backup safeties, first of all, it's something that you hope gets better and needs to get better. But when I look at like O.J. Burroughs, who is just this ball hawk of a freshman who maybe is a little undersized, I think 5'10 might be being a little generous there, but that's not news to you know college teams listing players bigger than they actually are. Um, but between him and Gilliam, if you can get some more pass rush, or, or not pass rush, pass coverage out of that. With Gilliam, he's a little bigger. Like You might be able to use him in sub-linebacker situations, as Bryson was alluding to earlier, with O.J. Burroughs, maybe he's a guy who helps you in coverage, something that Ricky Thomas, that was his biggest struggle a season ago. Here is KU defensive coordinator Brian Borland discussing the safety position for KU this season. we got to be better communicators back there right now. It's, I, I think I know what's going on. I'm not completely sure all the time, so I tend, the guys tend to hold back. You know, we got to just, hey, talk about speaking with their chest all the time, right? And even if you're wrong, let's all be wrong together instead of some on one page, some on another. So we got to communicate better, but I'll tell you, there's lots of ability back there, and uh, every day it's a different guy stepping up, making really a really a, a really eye-opening kind of a play sometimes. So uh, I know there's a lot of potential back there at that position, and quite honestly, I think at every position. So, um, uh, again, I, as long as we just, hey, take a step-by-step every day, get 1% better, I, I feel like we're going to keep moving in the right direction. And yeah, you hear him talk a lot about the communication, something that when you have all that ex- inexperience around those two upperclassmen safeties is going to be very important and sounds like something that they were working to improve. So if they have improved that and gotten better at that, that is going to be a nice little boon to what, while inexperience, is a very talented safety room and DB room overall for KU. Got a chance to catch up with Kenny Logan at KU Football Media Days a couple weeks ago. Here's that conversation. All right, so I just got done talking to Romello. He said you play the best music on the team. Is that true? I would say so. What's on the playlist? Uh, Rod Wave. I have some ESTG. A little Katy Perry. I mix it up here and there. 
That's a pretty wide variety. Yes, sir. Yeah? Uh, is there one song that gets you guys all pumped up the most for practice? Probably some young boy, mm -hmm. uh, Lonely Child. We always play that in the weight room to get us going, so I would say that song. Uh, who would you say of the safety group is the strongest? Either me or Ricky. Yeah. What about the fastest? Um, probably Jason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably yeah. Jason. Um, what have you liked so far about the new staff coming in and, and things that they've done? Um, just the way they came in and tried to make sure uh, they, they bonded our culture, tried to make sure they redid our culture, tried to make sure everybody was bought in, tried to make sure this was team-oriented. So I really appreciated them for that coming in, trying to make sure every guy, every guy on this team felt loved. Just not if you were a starter, labs on Dutch, everybody just wanted to make sure everybody was accounted for and was doing the right thing. Before the staff actually came in, when there was going through that transition, when you went to Emmett Jones and then him, how, how tough was that on the team overall? Um, it was very tough, but in this sport, you never know who comes and goes. So we was always trying to hold each other together. And with, with that, we was just trying to keep our heads up and keep working every day. Mm -hmm. It seems like you're a big leader on the team. Did you kind of take charge in trying to keep everybody together for that? Uh, I took charge. It was some other guys, uh, Ricky, MK, some of the old linemen, Chris Hughes, Nate's Betts, all those, we stood up and just tried to make sure we helped our team stay together, stay prepared, and stay uh, ready to work. All right, if you have the dream play, you can either have a pick six or you can just come in like a heat-seeking missile and knock a receiver out or something. What are you going for? Pick six. Yeah? Yeah, I want to jump an out route this year for 90. Love it, love yes, it. Sir. We getting kick return out of you too? Oh, yeah, you're going to get a couple out of them this year. <laughs> I love it. You have any uh, favorite hobbies outside of football? Really, I just chill, chill on my phone. And that's really it. Mm -hmm. Nothing? No favorite movies or anything? Um, I like Friday and I yeah. like the Michael Myers series. Ooh. Those are very different. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> right. Thanks, man. I Thank appreciate you. it. All right. A man of many tastes, Kenny Logan. I, I wish I would have asked his favorite foods because that would have been funny, too, if he was just like uh, two things like completely. Like, I like pizza and like graham crackers or something like just two completely different because the music completely different. The, the two movie choices completely different, but fun to talk to. I think he's in store for a nice season. And like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if he pops off a kick return in this opening game for KU. And how meaningful would that be for the guy who really felt like he was championing coming back among a lot of players when Lance Leipold and the new staff came in. The other safety next to him is his teammate, Ricky Thomas. Here's a conversation I had with Ricky at KU Football Media Days. Ricky, what do you think the strength of your defensive back unit is going to be this year? Uh, I feel like all of us going to be able to contribute, play a big part. And uh, I feel like we all bring uh, different things. So I'm very confident in, uh, in our defensive background. What have you liked so far about the new coaching staff and, and some of the guys you've gotten to know? Uh, I like how uh, they continue to, like, push us, you know. Uh, they, they, they don't let us set up for nothing less than what expected, and that's uh, to be the best we can be every single day. Is there anyone in the group who maybe has been a surprise and has really risen up so far, whether it was somebody who wasn't on the team last year or has really improved from their physical or getting into a playbook or something? Uh, I'll say uh, who improved the most was uh, some of the freshmen that showed up uh, in the spring. They catching on pretty well, and they just went through a transition of uh, new coaching staff, so they really getting uh, the new playbook pretty good. You logged a good amount of snaps with uh, Kenny over there. Uh, what is it like, like the chemistry between you two as, as safeties together? Uh, it's pretty strong. You know, we uh, 
we've been together for a minute, been um we got that chemistry, so you know what I mean? It's, it, it just goes, flows well on the field. All right, I got a couple superlatives for you. Who's the fastest guy on the team? Jamal Horn. Jamal Horn. Uh, who's the strongest guy? Uh, I'll say Sam Bird and Nate Betts. Best dancer? Wow. Uh, he's out of Kenny Logan or Jamal Horn. Okay. Funniest player on the team? Uh, TK Williams. Uh, do you have any favorite hobbies outside of football? Um, I just like to chill at home, chill, watch TV. All right, so I'll leave you with this one. What are the goals for this season for Ricky Thomas and, and KU? Um, the goals is to contribute the best way I can to help the team out to get some wins. Uh, that's mainly the goal. All right, that was Ricky Thomas, Kenny Logan as well. Safety position seems to be a pretty good one for KU. We'll find out more tomorrow night. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.